Good morning. It is so good to be with you today. What a privilege to gather, open up the Bible, sing praises, pray, do all the things that the body of Christ does. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 13. When you find that, please stand with me. And we're going to read verses 44 to 46. Matthew 13, beginning at verse 44. These are the words of, of Jesus as he spoke parables. And here's what he said. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us in giving us life, bringing us here today, giving us so many privileges. Lord, thank you that you speak to us through your word. And thank you that you will speak today. We pray in Jesus' name that you would be glorified. Amen. So, we are here today at the parables of the hidden treasure and costly pearl. The idea of hidden treasure intrigues us. The the thought of a gem so costly that all others pale in comparison is pretty exciting. Think about it. the, The possibility of untold riches being found. And in that, there are elements of mystery and intrigue and adventure, even danger. There are elements of of searching and finding and the joy of discovery. Books and movies about lost treasure capture our attention. Treasure Island and Indiana Jones, even the Goonies, uh, National Treasure, They're all about the quest for hidden treasure and the fact that some people will do anything to get it. When I was a kid, I I wanted a metal detector so that I could go and and find things. Didn't ever get one, but uh, just a few years ago, I found one for two bucks at a garage sale. (laughs) The kids and I have been out a few times. But today... We're exploring the background and the, and the explanation as well as the, the meaning and the application of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl. Everybody loves a treasure map. And when you come to the parables, sometimes you feel like you need a map because they're, they're, they're hidden, they're mysterious, they're, they're somewhat hard to figure out. Now Matthew has retold Jesus telling Four parables to the crowd so far. The sower, the weeds, the mustard, the leaven. He also has retold Jesus' explanation of two of them, the sower and the weeds, to his disciples. Now, the next four we'll be looking at, the, the two of them today, the hidden treasure, the costly pearl, the net, and the scribe. 
And these were spoken to his disciples alone. Now, many times we come to these parables and we have an idea, our minds, an idea of what they already mean. We, we kind, of, kind of come to them sometimes already having them figured out. And so whatever we read kind of goes with that, that idea that we have in our head. But, but a lot of the times when we come to the parables, we need some help unlocking the mystery, kind of trying to figure out what it is. One thing to be remindful of is that Jesus spoke of things that were common to people in his day. That, that in that culture back then, they could easily grasp the concepts. Even if the meaning, the, the true uh, meaning was hidden, and, uh, and figuring out the hidden meaning was even more difficult. One thing to remember before we dive into these two parables is that the eight parables of the kingdom that, that are in Matthew 13 are all about the kingdom of God. They're all about the kingdom of heaven, uh, God's salvation program, the saving acts of God in Christ. So that is really our compass as we look at these parables today. So let's look at verse 44. We'll start with the first the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a treasure hidden in a field. And a man finds it, and, and then he doesn't take it away. He covers it up. He hides it again. And then he goes, and he sells everything he has and buys the field, including the treasure that's in the field. Moved by joy, he goes and sells absolutely everything he owns. And buys that field to get the treasure. Why would he do that? Well, in those days, there were no banks as we know them. So people would hide their valuables under the ground. It would be for safekeeping. And what they would do is they re would record the location, the exact location, so that they or others after them could find what they had hidden. It was that simple. Michael Wilkins writes of, of the copper scroll found at Qumran, which listed 64 places in Palestine where treasures were supposed to be hidden. Here's a sample. In the ruin, which is in the valley, pass under the steps leading to the east, 40 cubits. There is a chest of money, and it's total the weight of 17 talents. Makes you want to go and find it, doesn't it? As long as you know what cubits are and talents are. See how much you're really going to look for. One time when Michael was younger, we were on a bike ride a few miles from home, and I think we had just watched a, a movie about hiding treasure and finding treasure, so we decided that we were going to bury something, uh, and then at some later date, we we're going to come back and, and, and dig it up and, and find it. And um, there was just one problem. We didn't write down where we put it. We only had it in our heads, and it was mostly in my head. And so we came back, I don't know, it was probably months later when we remembered, and uh, to the place we thought it was, and we're digging, and nothing, and, and we've never found it. So someone else may have found it, but I'm thinking that we just forgot and didn't know, don't know where. It's still there, by the way. I can give you instructions afterwards and give you a little, maybe a little uh, diagram if you want to go look. Now, in the Holy Land... For hundreds of years, it was a battleground. And because of that, to keep their valuables safe, people would put things like food and clothes underground so that, so that invading armies wouldn't come and steal that. They would also put their family treasure underground. 
Now, if a person died or left their land, the treasure would be lost until basically someone happened upon it. Now, in this parable, a man finds a treasure that's been left. The law said that if you found something that was lost, you could keep it. The problem here, though, is that this field was owned by someone. Probably someone who wasn't aware that there was a treasure on their land. But the man was honest, and he bought the field rather than just taking the treasure. Now let's move on to the next parable, verses 45 and 46. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine, costly pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value goes and sells all he had and bought it. He was a businessman seeking beautiful pearls and he finds one particular pearl of immense worth and he sells absolutely everything he has to get that one pearl. So he walks away with one pearl. A merchant in those days was a dealer traveling around looking for goods to buy and then resell for a higher price. He was making a profit. He was in business. And, and this particular merchant was searching for fine pearls, which back then were like diamonds are now. They were the most highly valued gems of their time. They would, be worth, would have been worth tens of millions of dollars in today's currency. They were bought for investments. You could have a lot of, of wealth kept in a very small package. Some Romans, some Ethiopians actually worshipped pearls. Many decorated themselves with pearls as a sign of wealth. Jesus spoke of pearls, not just in this parable. In chapter 7 and verse 6 of Matthew, he says, Do not cast your pearls before swine. He's telling his disciples not to cast the gospel before people who considered the gospel worthless. Revelation 21 and verse 21 pictures New Jerusalem's 12 gates, each made out of one huge pearl. Now there's a difference between these two parables. Unlike the, the first man who stumbled upon the treasure, the second man, the merchant, was actively looking. But the same response happened when he came across what he was looking for. He sold everything, gave up everything, and and bought it. Now the question before us today is, what do these two parables mean? What do they mean? I think every one of us has some idea of what they mean. But the first thing we need to recognize as we, as we go forth here is that these two parables are a pair. They're a pair like the parables of the mustard seed and leaven were. They go together and they make the same general point. In fact, Matthew loved pairs. Salt and light and, and other things he would put together to make a point even more strong. As a pair, these parables have identical meanings. As you go through and see what kind of interpretations are out there of these two parables, there are really two primary interpretations, two main views. The first view is this, that the price God paid to provide salvation for all who believe is immense is beyond anything. That's the first idea that's out there. That the kingdom, the, 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 the treasure is in the world, which is the field, 
And Jesus is the one who paid the supreme price to buy the field so he could claim the treasure, the church. Some people even see Israel in there. The whole idea there is that God sends Jesus, he sells all he has, gave his only begotten son, to die for sin and buy salvation. That's the first view. The second view is that those who are being saved willingly sacrifice everything for the kingdom, for the gospel. So the man in in that view is those who believe, who recognize how amazingly valuable God is and his salvation are and, and commit themselves to him fully. The primary idea there being the value of the treasure, God, the gospel, and that those who believe count the kingdom of heaven, knowing Jesus, of greater value than anything. So you've got two views here, and, and, and where do you go? Which one do you land with? The, those who hold to the first view, basically that the treasure is the church, use passages such as Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where God said this, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It ties in with 1 Peter 2.9, where it, it speaks of the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now those who hold the second view that the treasure is God and the gospel quote verses such as Matthew 6.21 where Jesus said where your treasure is there your heart will be also. First Peter 2.6 where Jesus is spoken of as the treasure behold I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, I favor the second view over the first for several reasons. First of all, what the kingdom of God stands for in Matthew 13. It doesn't stand for the church, but the rule of Jesus in his church. So we've got to remember that these parables speak of the kingdom of heaven. And here, the kingdom of heaven stands for trusting in the saving acts of God in Christ. And the benefits of that relationship so value that nothing compares. Another reason is that you would never say that the church was worth more than the price paid. But if you hold to the first view, you're basically saying that the church was worth greater than the sacrifice it took to purchase. And then one other thing, the fact that the, tr- that the idea of treasure, this is the, the main point really is focused on the treasure in these two parables. And... Um, uh, we mentioned a couple weeks ago that you, you can't make everything in a parable mean something or else you're going to be pushing ideas and meanings into the parables. But treasure has many Old Testament and New Testament associations beyond that of the church. And, and here's an, an idea. If you, if you hold to the first view, you would say that, that it's the hiddenness of the treasure, that the, the church is hidden in the world. But the hiddenness of the treasure isn't the main point here. The value of the treasure is. That's what's being emphasized here. The supreme value of the treasure. And hiding treasure was how it was kept for safekeeping. It was security. It wasn't the idea of blending. 
Now, the parable of the weeds had that idea that believers and unbelievers would coexist together in the world until the end of the age. But here, it's not talking about the church in the world. It's talking about the treasure of the gospel. The point of these parables is connected to the nature and the resulting action of those who discover the treasure and the pearl, and, and, which is the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. And both picture salvation as something hidden from most people, but so valuable that people who have it revealed to them gladly give up everything to possess it. The idea would be like this. Due to God's saving acts and giving us a heart to believe, we receive the gift of salvation and give up everything due to the untold worth of God's kingdom. Basically, the point is, is this. Salvation is worth more than anything. Salvation is worth more than anything. We, we tell people this. This is that the coming to faith in Christ is the most significant thing that can happen in a person's life. Now, sure, people raise all sorts of things over that. But it is worth more than anything, more valuable. Any cost is worth it. Knowing Christ is better than anything. When we recognize the value of knowing Christ, we gladly loosen our grip on all earthly things. That entering the kingdom of heaven is worth giving up everything. Last night, our, during our family time in the Word, I shared these verses. Uh, I usually do on Saturday nights. We open up and read the verses that are in my head for preaching the next morning. And so I read Matthew 13, 44 to 46. And Sophia, our youngest, um, says... Who sells everything to buy one pearl? Good question. Who does things like that? I mean, who does things like that? I mean, who's the homeless guy with the big pearl? I mean, that's basically what people would have been thinking. He has nothing left except the pearl. Now, who does things like that? I'll tell you who does things like that. People who are so in love with Jesus... They can't do anything else. People saved by Jesus do things like that. Extravagant, seemingly foolish things for the kingdom. Paul said in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the heart of these parables. We're talking a lot about salvation here, so we better stop for a moment and explain. I better stop and explain what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? When I'm using this terminology, what does that mean? Well, you know, in general, if you're saved, it just means you've been rescued from danger, right? If you're swimming in a pool and you're about to drown and someone rescues you, you say, wow, they saved me, right? If you're standing in, in, in the middle of oncoming traffic and someone tackles you and pushes you out of the way, you say, wow, they saved me from getting run over. In a spiritual sense, it means this. If you say, hey, I'm saved. I'm saved by Jesus. It means that you've been saved from the wrath of God that your sins deserve. 
There was a penalty coming towards you um, at the greatest speed. And you had no idea at, one, at, at any point you might be leaving earth. And God rescued. It signifies a rescue from sin and death and hell and the power and penalty of sin. It is God's work of saving. So when we say, I'm saved, we're saying, Jesus saved me. We cannot save ourselves because we are dead in sin apart from Christ. It would be foolish to think that we could save ourselves. And so when a person comes to saving faith in Christ, they are rescued from the power and penalty of sin, and they will someday be rescued from the presence of sin. That's part of the idea of the fact that we, those who are being saved, those who are saved are being saved. It's a process because we're not saved yet from the presence of sin. But we shall be. And those God saves respond like like the man in the field who comes upon a treasure or like the merchant that is actively seeking treasure, gems. And what happens is evidence, um, fruit, presents itself. God's gracious act of saving drives our response. So the next question is, how do these parables apply to us? If that's the case, if salvation is worth more than anything, and and I know that you could say, well, hey, whatever. These are just two parables. They don't affect me in my life. Well, let's look a little deeper. How do these parables apply to us? What can we glean? We learn things from these three short verses. We learn things about the immeasurable worth of salvation and the joy we have in Christ and riches in Christ and commitment to Christ and things like that. These parables picture really how the saved respond to being saved. I'm going to share with you five things, five aspects of, of how the saved know Jesus as their treasure. Number one, those being saved recognize the untold worth of God's kingdom. That's the the obvious point in both of these parables, that the kingdom is priceless, that Jesus is the source of true life. Both of the men in these parables recognized the value of what they'd found, so they determined to have it. Nothing was going to get in their way. In fact, to get it, they sold everything they had, and then they possessed the treasure. John Chrysostom, who lived from 349 to 407 AD wrote this about these two parables. The former lesson of the leaven and of the mustard seed was spoken with a view to the power of the gospel and to its surely prevailing over the world. But these of the treasure and the pearl declare its value and great price. Value and great price. And recognizing its worth, you could really say it's like finding the gift of salvation. Words that I really don't like to use very often. But they fit perfectly in this context. Many of you are too young to remember the 1976 Campus Crusade campaign that was launched along with an 800 number 
I think that was pretty new at the time. And it was the I Found It campaign. Doug Roller actually had, had the pin that I remember that bugged me so much that people wore back then. I thought this was a ridiculous thing. I was not a believer at the time, and I thought it was pretty foolish. I was like, found what? You know, well, you lost? What's going on? Um, here's the way it worked. There were billboards, there were bumper stickers, and there were these pins that people would wear. And it said, I found it. And so you were supposed to ask, found what? What did you find? And that was to give them an opportunity to share Jesus with you. And, uh, and, and Doug actually got this from First Baptist Downey. They gave him out to, probably to all the kids in the youth group and the whole church and all that. And, and they did that. And then guys like me over at, at Downey High at, as a freshman at the time thought they were freaks. <laughs> the way it worked. Eighty-five percent of all Americans supposedly were exposed to that campaign at the time. By 1978, it hit more than 100 countries. More than 3.5 million people reported becoming Christians as a result. Now, only God knows. I mean, some of you are skeptical like me, and so you're thinking, yeah, how many of them were really saved? Well, you know what? That's not, our, that's not really our, our deal, is it? I mean, only God knows how many of those were real conversions. But I'll tell you what. A lot of people heard of the immeasurable worth of the kingdom of God in Christ. All because of a silly campaign. Silly buttons. So it does fit the parable of the, of the treasure and parable of the pearl. Uh, think of it this way. Overjoyed by the discovery of life in Christ, a person says, I found it. I found it. Especially the pearl, the pearl dude. The guy who's looking for, tre- for they're look, he's looking for pearls, and then he finds that one. I found it! Eureka! It applies to, to people who weren't looking, but found treasure, like the guy in the first parable, like Paul, the Apostle Paul, not looking. God knocks him off his high horse, blinds him, saves him. It applies to to people that were seeking pearls, who came across that one great pearl that exceeds all others, people whose hearts God had moved to, to seek him, like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, reading the prophet Isaiah, wanting to worship God. Philip preached Jesus to him from that portion of Scripture. Either way, God works to save those who believe. So the first thing the saved do is they recognize the untold worth of God's kingdom. The second thing flows out of that. They experience the, the joy of life in Christ. Unending joy. The first man from joy went and sold all he had. Nobody forced him to do it. Nobody said, you know what you better do? You need to go and buy that field. He was so overjoyed by what he had found that that was his sole motivation. Joy. Jesus, believers find, is the source of true joy. We go looking for it everywhere, don't we? 
What's going to make us happy? What's going to make us feel good? What's going to make us feel fulfilled? And one thing after another, after another, disappoints us. A major theme in both parables, while not stated in the second, is the joy of the gospel. It's implied in the second. Moved by joy, each man, the farmer and the businessman, sold absolutely everything he had and bought into the precious reality. What you see here is that joy in Christ drives action. Joy is the engine of sacrifice. But neither man saw it as a sacrifice. They felt they had gained in the transaction. It made sense to them. And both made huge gains. You look at the history of Christian ministry and missions and you will see the common denominator of joy. Joy in Christ. Jesus, Philippians 2 says, For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. In God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forever. The Bible speaks of being filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. James talks about counting it all joy when you encounter various trials. And joy is different than feeling happy. Look over with me at John chapter 15. Jesus speaking of being the vine and we are the branches and apart from him we can do nothing. And that he wants us to go and bear fruit and prove to be his disciples. He says in verse 11, John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. That Christ's joy may be in us. And then he says, and that your joy may be full. Full to the brim. Spilling over. Beyond containing. John chapter 16. In verse 24. Jesus said, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We experience the joy, the unending joy of life in Christ and it, it really supersedes, it really goes beyond any human experience. You can have joy in the midst of trials, joy in the midst of hardship, joy in the midst of unspeakable pain. Because it's different than a feeling. Third thing, those who are saved not only recognize the worth of the kingdom, not only experience the unending joy of life in Christ that drives their action, but they enjoy the riches that are found in Christ. Now I've got your attention. There are benefits, yes. You're thinking, well, where are we going to hand these out? I didn't get mine yet. Oh, yes, you did. You can't put them in your wallet, your bank account. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Those who are saved see that Jesus is the source of true riches. One writer said this, In the parables, he presents the kingdom as of great value in itself and of great advantage to those who embrace it. Great advantage to those who embrace it. They have the riches of Christ. But the joy of followers in Christ are, are increased 
by Him in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have riches. One of those riches, by the way, we take for hugely for granted is, is, the, is actually the Word of God. It's interesting that never, have there, never before has there been so many Bibles and Bible resources and never before has there been so much biblical illiteracy. Psalm 19 speaks of God's Word being a treasure. It says it is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and more to be desired than fine gold. The Word of God is more to be desired than fine gold. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of us being dead in sin, unable to do a thing. Then it says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why did God do that? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we walk in those good works, as we do the fruit of, of, of Christ being in us, we are being shown by God the immeasurable riches of His grace. We basically have grace in the place of grace every moment. Grace for grace. Grace saving us. Grace keeping us alive. Grace inspiring our actions. And grace keeping us going. The last paragraph of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity says, Nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. Those who are in Christ enjoy the the unfathomable riches of Christ. And the fourth thing, the believing, the saved, display an unwavering commitment to Christ. An unwavering commitment to Christ. And some of you are already thinking, but I wavered this week and I've been wavering for years maybe. So how so? How, how could I display an unwavering commitment to Christ? It's because Jesus is the basis for true commitment. Think back with me to these parables. Here you have a man who buys a field to get the treasure. Here you have another man who buys a pearl with everything he owns. 
And they, they, in, they are joyful over it. And, and they enjoy the riches that they have gained. But they're also unwaveringly committed to the thing they purchased because of the price. Joy and riches in Christ lead to a focus clean to Christ on our part. But we all know we're not perfectly faithful. We know that at a moment's notice, we are prone to wander and we feel it. We are prone to leave, as the hymn says, the God we love. So what do we say? In the, in the, 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 hymn, the, the hymn writer says, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Uh, protect me, Lord. We, are, we know we're not perfectly faithful, but God is. And his commitment to us is unwavering. That's why you can speak of our commitment to, in Christ to be unwavering. R.T. France wrote this, The parables of the treasure and pearl belong closely together and illustrate the wholehearted response which the kingdom of heaven requires. No sacrifice is too great and no other concern must stand in the way of it. But the note is not of the negative giving up, but of joy and fulfillment. There is something about the kingdom of heaven which makes extravagant action the only proper response. John MacArthur, in the gospel according to Jesus, wrote that salvation is truly a work of God. It cannot be defective. It cannot fail to impact an individual's behavior. It cannot leave his desires unchanged or his conduct unaltered. It cannot result in a fruitless life. I heard a man say once that a true knowledge of God leads to a truly changed life. I would add to that, motivated by love and joy, not guilt and obligation. See, it isn't about duty, but joy. It's not about law, but gospel. It's not about reluctantly giving something up, but gladly relinquishing everything. It's, it's very popular for people like me to, to stand up in places like this and guilt people into deeper commitment to Christ. It's almost like standing up here saying, you need to eat your vegetables because they're good for you. Well, wouldn't you rather have someone say, here's your steak, enjoy it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's not, hey, you better do it because this is what's expected. But you want to because of all that you've been given. But not to pay him back. Just out of gratitude. Just out of love and, 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 and joy. It's very popular to say, look, Jesus did so much for you. What are you going to do for him? I remember hearing a... a um, a, a, a guy sing a song in, in, a church, in a church once, and it was, what have I done for him lately? I mean, how self-oriented of a song could you have from a follower of Christ? What have I done for him lately? If we think we've made some huge sacrifice for Jesus and that somehow then God needs to bless us, we've got to ask ourselves, who am I truly in love with? Who am I truly serving? Why am I doing this? We ought to say, we're just unworthy servants doing what we were asked to do. So then in that, in that mindset, no sacrifice is too big. 
You love Jesus supremely, it won't feel like a sacrifice at all. You think the guy that bought the field thought he was making a sacrifice? You think the guy that bought the big, the, the pearl, thought he was making a sacrifice? They won in the trans, they, they, they won in that transaction. Salvation is, in Christ is worth far more than the cost of following Christ. Last thing. Engage others with the gospel. That's what people who are saved do. And you say, well, how do you see this in this passage? Where, where, where is this? Well, Jesus is the source of, of our true service and engagement in the world. But think of it this way. Both transactions of the field and of the pearl, neither was done in a corner. The guy had to buy a field from someone. You don't think his neighbors knew what he bought? Hey, look at the new guy moving in. He owns a field. Who is that guy? Look at the treasure he's pulling out of the ground. You don't think the guy that, that bought the pearl, that his neighbors and friends and family didn't know he made a life-altering purchase? The homeless guy with the big pearl? Those who recognize the untold worth of salvation in Christ engage others with the gospel of Christ. But it's, it just spills out. People see, people observe. You talk about it. We engage others because we believe that God changes life by His Spirit through His Word. Some say life change happens in small groups. I hear it a lot in pastor kind of groups and they say life change happens in small groups but none of them would say that small groups change lives they're all saying hey when people get together and get in around the word and prayer and fellowship and and sharing their faith with others in community god does something by his spirit through his word in his people isaiah 55 speaks of God's word. Isaiah 55 speaks of God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts and God's ways being higher than God's ways. But at the end of that chapter, there is a, there is a verse, verse 13, that says that, verse 12 says, you're going to be going out with joy and be led forth with peace. And then it says this, instead of a thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of a briar, there'll come up a myrtle. And it will be a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that will not be cut off. It's speaking of, of, of a transforming effect upon a desert. That's what God does in our life when we come to Christ. We're a barren wasteland and he, he grows us into a lush field or garden. And so then our testimony, how Jesus changed our life, becomes a name to Him. A, a memorial to Him. A testament to His greatness and and grace. You know, a lot of people get engaged. They give a ring, and then they put a wedding date out there. Some of you are engaged here, or been recently engaged. If you've been married a long time, you can think back to when you were engaged. And Angela and I just had our 20th anniversary this week, and we went back to the place we got engaged. But you know what? You get engaged, and it means you're committed to a course of action that's going to result in marriage. When you engage others with the gospel, it means that you are committing yourself to their spiritual well-being. Now, you don't know if it's going to eventuate in them getting married to Jesus in a manner of speaking. And there's so many ways to do it. We got to get creative. You know, you got the I found it. Remember back in 1980, I was at 
Long Beach State, and a guy named Jay Bell, missionary that we uh, are associated with here at Grace. He was on, I didn't know this, we just found this out but, uh, in the last few years, but uh, he was the campus ministry director. He had this idea to every Easter time stage a mock crucifixion and have a, and have a Christian rock concert. And I remember thinking they were freaks. Why would they be doing that? And then I came to Christ my second year of college. And I, I, I was right there front and center watching and wanting to engage people with the gospel. There are so many... Here's, I, I had a friend named Dave Newsma, and here's all he did is he lived his life before me and was a good friend. He was a believer and he lived his life faithfully for the Lord and, and, and that spoke to me. There are so many ways to get out there with the gospel and my, 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 my exhortation would be try anything and everything to do that. And we will help you, we'll pray for you, we'll support you, we'll do whatever it takes because salvation is worth more than anything. So it should be worth anything to get the gospel out. Some people take issue with these parables and they say, this is saying that you buy your salvation somehow. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. D.A. Carson wrote that Jesus is not interested in religious efforts or in affirming that one can buy the kingdom. On the contrary, he is saying that the person whose whole life has been bound up with looking for pearls, their own efforts basically, will on comprehending the true value of the kingdom as Jesus presents it, gladly exchange all else to follow him. What we do is we surrender to Jesus. We leave the results up to him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for salvation being a free gift. We're mindful, though, that when someone is saved, a a personal transaction takes place. We surrender. And and we know it's a work of the Spirit in our lives. And we know we're giving up worthless efforts. And I pray, Lord, though, for anyone in this place today that hearing these words that, that hasn't surrendered to Christ, but they're recognizing that salvation is a free gift that they've somehow been working for. And so... As they hear these words, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. May they respond to the free gift of eternal life in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you provide everything necessary. And thank you that those being saved know it and respond. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.